Hitler's valet forever preserved the dictator's morning routine on April 20th, 1939 by telling us that the Fuhrer donned his brown party uniform and put on the golden dress belt of a German general as supreme commander of the Wehrmacht. He stood before the mirror in his bedroom for ages, feasting his eyes on his own image like a peacock and repeatedly adjusting his jacket. It was his 50th birthday, and despite the fact that world events were beginning to spiral out of the Germans' control, the country had designated the day as a national holiday. All Germans were subsequently obligated to hang out a swastika flag in the morning. Each shop and office building displayed a picture of Hitler in their windows, and a 50,000-troop military parade, the Nazis' largest ever staged, would later be watched by two million spectators in Berlin. There's no knowledge of what Hitler wished for when he blew out the candles that night in celebration, but it likely never came true. For six years later, Adolf Hitler would emerge to greet the day from his hidden underground bunker in the same city. This time there weren't flags hanging from every window, nor were there throngs of people cheering on the troops. Berlin was besieged and faced constant shellings. Despite the dire straits, there remained a handful of supporters who still held out hope for a German miracle regarding World War II. But even most of these stayed away from the government center on the morning of Hitler's 56th birthday. In the afternoon, the leader who just six years earlier had strutted around like a peacock was obligated to let his assistants pin the Iron Cross medals on members of the Hitler Youth as his left arm betrayed him by shaking so badly that he was forced to keep it clenched tightly behind his back. Although food had been arranged for the obligatory evening birthday party, Hitler went to bed early and alone. Within ten days, the man that had plunged the world into war and who had set an entire nation on the path of genocide would take his own life, unable to cope with his failure. You're listening to Anarchy, Empires, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives to assist in the teaching of history. This is episode 7 in our series on Adolf Hitler, his death and legacy. Just because it was crystal clear to everyone else doesn't mean that Hitler nor his sycophants would go quietly in accepting defeat. Hitler had lost his last roll of the dice at the Battle of the Bulge. January 25, 1945 began a race to the war's end, one that the Soviets would go on to win. In early 1944, General Dwight Eisenhower had stated that Berlin was the main prize. And it doesn't take an expert general to understand why. The capital city was the seat of Hitler's authority and contained the remains of the Nazi advanced weapons program, including the totality of their own atomic weapons program. The Allied Supreme Commander decided that the race to Berlin took such precedence 
that they refused to liberate Holocaust camps that were outside of their prescribed path. But in late March of 1945, Eisenhower called for a halt, telegramming Joseph Stalin directly that the Western forces would forego Berlin and stay behind the Elbe River. It amounted to a concession that the West had lost the race for Berlin. At this point, the Red Army was a mere 40 miles outside of the city. The Battle of the Bulge had caused the U.S. and its allies to fall behind the Soviets, and fear of German counteroffensives were in the front of their minds. Towards the end of the war, Joseph Goebbels, the eccentric German propaganda minister, had formed the Werewolf Organization. This group of specially trained soldiers were rumored to have prepared for underground guerrilla warfare on the other side of the Elbe. Goebbels communicated with the group over open public broadcasts dubbed Radio Werewolf. One such broadcast claimed that God has given up the protection of the people. Satan has taken command. We werewolves consider it our supreme duty to kill, to kill, and to kill, employing every cunning and vile in the darkness of the night, crawling, groping through towns and villages like wolves, noiselessly, mysteriously. Runic W symbols had even begun to appear on buildings intended to single out targets for vengeance. Unlike World War I, where the war never touched the German soil, and thus the stab-in-your-back theory was allowed unfettered growth, there was no doubt as to who was winning this time. Germans, who had been complicit in the crimes of their country, were waking up and beginning to wonder if the West would allow them to make amends during the 11th hour of the conflict. The werewolves were a last attempt to maintain the government's control of its people, this time directly via fear and pain. They went pretty far with the allusions to the supernatural, with one broadcaster making the bold statement that, I am so savage, I am filled with rage, Lily the werewolf is my name, I bite, I eat, I am not tame, my werewolf teeth bite the enemy. But just like everything else had for Hitler, the werewolves failed to stem the tide. Although one U.S. intelligence report asserted that the werewolves were one of the greatest threats to security in both the American and Allied zones of occupation, it turned out that Goebbels' bark was far worse than his wolves' bite. Or, as General Patton put it, the threat of werewolves and murder was bunk. The British were stunned by Eisenhower's decision to halt at the river. Unlike their American counterparts, English officers were purposefully trained to consider political objectives in their military calculations. They knew that every bit of ground taken by the Soviets would remain in communist hands. Ironically, Eisenhower, who would go on to become the civilian commander-in-chief of the U.S. military via the Office of the Presidency, was only considering the military objectives of the moment. A headlong rush through potential redoubts just for the chance to get to Berlin before Russia wasn't worth the military risk, 
their allies would have to be the ones to finish Berlin off. New information would make the Americans immediately regret that decision to halt. On April 23rd, three days after the Fuhrer had turned 56 years old, three German officers crossed the river in order to surrender. Lieutenant General Kurt Dittmar volunteered for interrogation and revealed that there was nothing more than unorganized pockets of resistance between the river and Berlin, and that in fact Adolf Hitler, whose whereabouts had remained hidden for years, remained living in Berlin. When the Allies expressed surprise at this information, Dittmer expressed the thought that Hitler would never abandon Berlin. According to him, he would either be killed there or commit suicide. Stalin didn't need a second invitation. From the beginning of the war, he recognized the political and psychological effects that taking Berlin would have upon the world. Keep in mind that Berlin offered Russia the opportunity to establish communism in the heart of Karl Marx's own kingdom. The specter of communism still loomed large across Europe and the world. The instant that Eisenhower's telegraph reached the eyes of the self-proclaimed Man of Steel, Stalin had ordered his generals to advance on the German capital with all speed, and regardless of any cost. Historians Ada Petrova and Peter Watson, authors of The Death of Hitler, the full story with new evidence from secret Russian archives, claims that Stalin couldn't believe that Eisenhower could be so wrong or so naive, and therefore assumed that he must be playing some sort of political game. But he wasn't going to wait to find out. Berlin would soon be added to the Union of Soviet Socialist Republic States. The Battle of Berlin, the last stand for Hitler, began on April 16th, as the Red Army attacked the capital from the east. The battle is also known by many historians as the Rape of Berlin. In the final months of the war, the Soviets had earned a reputation for savage brutality towards their enemies. And that reputation would be added to as the army entered the civilian center of Germany. According to some estimates, the Soviet army committed 100,000 sexual assaults within the city, and up to 2 million across the country. This event is recognized as the largest mass rape event in history, even worse in number terms than the rape of Nanking, China, an event that history books write about with far more frequency. Although the Soviets were paired with the Allies against the Nazis, keep in mind that they were similarly a part of a murderous totalitarian regime. In fact, depending upon how you count the causes of the deaths, most historians agree that Joseph Stalin was responsible for more murders than Hitler was. Nazi troops, such as Driscoll, were relatively quick to surrender to their foes in the West, for they knew that they would receive humane treatment in accordance with international law. Against the Soviets, however, the Nazis felt that a death on the battlefield would be far better than a death within a Soviet gulag. The Russians enveloped the German Ninth Army protecting the city, 
and began to shell Berlin on April 21st, the fifth day in the battle for the city. On April 22nd, Hitler attempted to break out the Ninth Army by committing forward elements from the 12th. Failure in this mission led him to replace generals two days later, proving that he was more interested in playing a shell game rather than fulfilling some visionary strategy. Americans were now rushing to join the ongoing battle. After they had realized that Hitler was indeed in the city, they came from the Western Front on April 25th. The city was now fully encircled with no remaining avenues of escape. The final assault on the city meant that they would face an unexpected enemy, a 45,000 strong but entirely green force made up of the SS who had spent the past five years fighting individuals who couldn't fight back. They were joined by members of the Hitler Youth, the equivalent of German Boy Scouts, as well as the Volkstrom Militia. These were males aged between 16 to 60 who for whatever reason had not previously been allowed to sign up for military service. If Hitler was going to go down, he was determined to throw away every single life at his disposal. Soviets were pushing into the city via multiple routes and on April 29th had crossed the Molki Bridge to capture the Gestapo headquarters and plant the familiar hammer and sickle flag on top of the Reichstag. While this was happening, Adolf Hitler would complete his will and testament, marry his longtime mistress Eva Braun, and receive word that his former fascist ally Benito Mussolini's corpse had been smashed in fury by a mob who had left his desecrated body strung upside down outside of a gas station in Milan. Let's take a moment to examine each of the three events. First, Hitler completed his last will and testament. The will made it expressly clear that he was married, that he and his wife chose death over defeat. Like most wills, it sought to divide up his belongings. Although the document was rushed, it clearly shows what the 56-year-old Austrian valued. He left his art collection to a gallery in his hometown of Linz. His relatives and individuals, such as his faithful housekeeper, received any objects of sentimental value and then anything else of value would be assigned to the Nazi party. The act of dictating such a proclamation showed that Hitler remained delusional to the end, and not just about his ability as an artist. The will indicates a clear belief that the Nazi party would be allowed to remain in operation after the reconstruction of Germany. His testament was significantly longer and in the traditional style of an Adolf Hitler dictation, it rambled. In the beginning of the document, he talks about his guiding motivations since the First World War, falsely claiming that neither he nor any German sought out World War II. He then ranted against the Jewish people for a while, laying all of the blame for everything that ever went wrong for him at their feet. The testament suggests that it was his fear of being made into a spectacle at the hands of the international Jewry that resulted in his predetermined decision to take his life. He then proceeded to purge the party one last time, 
expelling Hermann Göring, his previously named successor, and Heinrich Himmler, his head of the SS. Göring was removed from the line of succession because he had the audacity to send a telegram to Hitler after he had become informed of the Fuhrer's intention to commit suicide. Evidently, Hitler expected slightly more sympathy, which is reasonable considering that his body wasn't even in the ground yet. Although Göring was just checking whether he would be the one in charge after the deed was done, he was expelled for treason. Himmler's expulsion was more predictable. News had been confirmed that the head of the SS had begun the process of negotiating his own surrender independent of that of the Fuhrer. The liaison between Himmler and Hitler was Hermann Figeling, Eva Braun's brother-in-law. Unable to unleash his wrath directly upon Himmler, Figelein paid with his life for the treasonous act of not betraying one boss to the other. Hitler then used the testament to announce a new cabinet, a new president of the Reich, and elevated Joseph Goebbels to the position of Chancellor of the Reich, despite the fact that the Reichstag had a Soviet flag flying above it at the moment. The next item on his bucket list was to marry his longtime mistress, Eva Braun. He had begun his relationship with Braun shortly after his niece, whom he had been involved romantically with, had committed suicide in the apartment which they shared. We covered this on a previous episode, letting listeners know that the accusations of murder, as well as the rumor that Hitler was a closeted homosexual, shook Hitler's political aspirations to their very core. Braun offered an opportunity for Adolf to recover. She was a 17-year-old girl working at a photography studio when she met the 40-year-old Nazi leader. She described the man, who was 23 years her senior, as a gentleman of a certain age with a funny mustache and carrying a big felt hat. Despite what clearly was affection for the girl, Braun was essentially hidden from the world. Few Germans at the end even knew who she was. Braun was disturbed, just like all of the women who had spent private time with the fear. Twice during the relationship, she had attempted to commit suicide, first with a bullet to her chest, and then later by overdosing on pills. Each attempt was viewed as a call for attention, and as a reaction, Hitler bought her a house near his and gifted her a fancy car with a personal chauffeur. As Hitler rose, Braun's allowance did as well. She often acted as his hostess in his personal state. When he was away, she was said to have occupied her time reading romance novels and watching romantic films. Historians are confused by the relationship between the two. They slept in adjoining rooms, suggesting that the relationship was political in nature. But Braun was said to have regularly stuffed her blouse with tissues in an attempt to get his attention. Hitler himself explained his decision to not get married earlier in his life, telling his followers that, quote, Many women find me appealing because I'm unmarried. It's the same thing with a film actor. When he marries, he loses a certain something among the women who worship him, 
and they no longer idolize him quite as much anymore, end quote. When she wasn't forced to hide from guests at their shared home, he would visibly hand her envelopes of money to suggest to their visitors that she was merely a prostitute. Despite this insulting treatment, she chose to come to Hitler's side in his last hour, traveling to Berlin in April of 1945, just a few weeks before the Soviets began their final assault. The wedding preparations began fast and furiously on the morning of April 29th. Goebbels managed to find out about a 50-year-old officiant fighting with the untrained Volkstrom, desperately fighting to hold the city. The SS were dispatched to find and retrieve him from the front lines, which they managed shortly before 1 a.m. Within the next hour, the couple left their shared apartment, with Hitler said to have had an extremely ashen and tired face. The marriage ceremony included a declaration that the two were both pure Aryans, despite the fact that Hitler still did not know who his paternal grandfather was, as well as the public declaration that they were both free of all hereditary diseases. Of course, we know that Hitler at this point was full of sexually transmitted diseases. The ten-minute ceremony concluded with Eva Braun mistakenly writing her maiden name on the marriage certificate. She proceeded to cross it out and wrote Eva Hitler, nie Braun, for the first and only time in her life. The reception would go on to last for hours, with the pair entertaining guests while drinking champagne and tea. Hitler openly talked of his plans to commit suicide, and his belief that death would come as a relief to him now that he had been betrayed by his closest friends, presumably meaning Goring and Himmler. The third event that had precipitated the Fuhrer's last actions was the discovery of the fate of the inventor of fascism, Benito Mussolini. Rather than fulfilling the role of originator, Mussolini quickly fell in line behind Hitler, who gleefully pulled the strings and drove Italy into a war that it neither desired nor was capable of winning. After the Allies somersaulted into the Apennine Peninsula, Benito resigned under pressure from the king, was arrested, and driven to his undisclosed prison via a Red Cross van. He was rescued two months later by Nazi paratroopers who raided the mountain ski resort that he had been imprisoned in. Hitler immediately restored Mussolini back to a position of power, albeit as the figurehead of the Social Republic of Italy, which only included the northernmost portions of actual Italy. As the Social Republic of Italy steadily lost ground to Italy and the Allies, Mussolini fled Milan in his Alfa Romera sports car, dressed as a German airman. His car was stopped close to the border of Germany, and the former dictator of Italy was quickly recognized. Apparently, the dictator tradition of making everyone plaster a picture of yourself on every building might not be the best idea if you ever have to remain incognito. A few days after he was apprehended at the border, he was placed against a wall 
and executed via machine gun fire. On April 29th, his corpse was desecrated and hung upside down attached to the roof of a run-of-the-mill gas station. The National World War II Museum of New Orleans eloquently writes about Mussolini's final indignity, saying, The posthumous desecration, the man who had once strutted across the world stage now dangling by his heels next to his mistress, a maddened crowd howling epitaphs of hatred and derision, cursing, spitting on the corpses. A woman stepping forward and pumping five bullets into his body for my five dead sons, she said. Some of these same folk had probably chanted Duce, Duce, once upon a time, perhaps not so long ago. Nonetheless, the sentiments were real, and in Mussolini's case, utterly deserved. It was, as the New York Times put it, a fitting end to a wretched life. According to statements made by Hermann Göring at the Nuremberg trials, Hitler had vowed that a similar spectacle would never be allowed to happen to him. British historian Ian Kershaw isn't quite sure how much of the details that Hitler heard, but suggests that if he did learn the full gory tale of Mussolini's death, it could have done no more than confirm his anxiety to take his own life before that choice was taken from him as well as the need to prevent his body from being seized by his enemies. The end came in the private study of the fear on April 30, 1945. Shells were constantly raining down on the area at this point as the Russian forces were a mere 450 yards away. Hitler walked in with his pistol, and his wife of one day entered armed only with a cyanide capsule. Reportedly, the two had tested the poison out earlier on Adolf's German shepherd, Blondie. They also gave orders for the guards to put down Blondie's puppies, as well as Eva's pet Scottish terriers. He wore his Nazi uniform jacket and black trousers. She wore a blue dress trimmed in white. They sat down beside each other on the small couch, and the door to the room was closed for them by the servants who waited outside. The Washington Post reported on the event for the 75th anniversary of Hitler's death. In the piece, historian Ian Kershaw proclaims that there was no sound heard from the study, as the bombing suffocated all sound from the area. Ten minutes passed after Hitler's valet smelled rather than heard the discharged gun. He went in to see both deceased, Hitler with a bullet hole in his right temple, and Braun was slumped to his left, reeking of cyanide. Her contorted face betrayed how she had died, he said. Per his orders, 47 gallons of gasoline were found, and the bodies were removed from the chamber and brought up to the ground-level garden of the bunker. Goebbels lit the matches, but the wind was too strong. Someone then suggested using a hand grenade before another found a torch. After the impromptu cremation was performed, the two's remains were buried in the garden. They then went 
to the bunker and began to burn any and all evidence, including the blood-stained carpet, his uniforms, and medicines. Goebbels next saw to his own family. His wife had a medical assistant give their six children a shot of morphine to knock them out so they didn't notice when Hitler's personal doctor crushed cyanide in their limp mouths. Goebbels' wife wrote to her older son, who had already become interned as a POW, that, quote, they are too good for the life that would follow. The parents then went up to the garden, took cyanide themselves, and were shot by their guards. Although the intent was to ensure that their bodies couldn't be desecrated by the Russian soldiers, the lack of obvious remains resulted in conspiracy theories that disappointingly remained decades after the events. The majority of which claimed that Adolf had survived the war and lived out the rest of his life in South America, which in fact was where a number of high-profile Nazis fled to. Many of these, including Joseph Mengel, were then hunted down by the Israelis. The stories were rampant, and the top levels of the spy community investigated them thoroughly. This included an opened and closed file by America's head of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover. The long-standing rumor of survival again popped up in 2009 after the U.S. performed modern DNA testing on a piece of bone that the Russians had always claimed was Hitler's. It turns out that the bone, however, was from a female rather than a male. This didn't mean that Hitler hadn't died in the method that we just discussed. It just meant that the Russians had grabbed the wrong person's bone from the burned-out garden. Russia reluctantly led a group of French pathologists in to examine some of their secret files, including another jawbone from the garden. And this group once again confirmed what we have always known, and what NPR was forced to report in some tongue-and-cheek commentary. This was the first time that researchers outside of Russia were allowed to access the teeth. Hitler had notoriously bad teeth, and at the time he died, only a few of his own remained. The remains revealed no trace of meat, consistent with the fact that he was a vegetarian. The article continues that the teeth were also readily identifiable because of conspicuous and unusual bridge work that had been intimately described by Hitler's personal dentist. NPR continued by saying, The teeth are authentic. There is no possible doubt, according to lead pathologist Felipe Collier. Here is where the tongue-in-cheek portion comes in. We can stop all the conspiracy theories about Hitler. He did not flee to Argentina in a submarine. He is not in a hidden base in Antarctica or on the dark side of the moon. That's right, the moon. As the Telegraph wrote in 2009, the Nazi development late in the war of high-technology weapons, including the V-2, an early ballistic missile, and the ME-262 jet fighter, inspired some to believe that Germany had secretly won the space race. It was also suggested that the Nazis had made contact with UFOs and that they had made it to the moon as early as 1942. The announcement of Hitler's death was also a bit out of this world. 
On May 1st, the day after his death, the German radio announced at 9.30 p.m. that there would be an announcement of the utmost importance. They then played several excerpts from Wagner's operas. At 10.20 p.m., the Grand Admiral Karl Donitz announced that Hitler had fallen this afternoon fighting at the head of his troops. Even in death, the lies and propaganda that constantly swirled around the life of Adolf Hitler would continue. The Times of London printed his obituary with this lie in it, and neutral Irish leader Amon de Valera would get in hot water at home for sending condolences to the Germans for the death of their beloved Nazi. Donitz's attempt to falsely martyr Hitler rather than reveal his suicide was done in a last-ditch attempt to inspire the German people to victory. But they had had enough. On May 7th, eight days after the events in the Fear Bunker, the Germans signed an unconditional act of military surrender with the forces of the West. The Russians waited until two days later, May 9th, to accept the surrender, as they waited for a higher-up official than the West had entertained. Hardcore History, a tremendous long-form podcast by Dan Carlin, pitches a book idea regarding Hitler. Carlin reminds us that the further we get away from the events, and the more the victims' faces meld to become meaningless statistics, revisionist historians will begin to examine the long-term effects that the earlier events had led to. These effects, many of which are positive results that may or may not have occurred without the tragic events, begin to turn positives out of the negatives. Carlin's pitch is that hundreds of years from now, someone will write about all of the positives that came out of World War II and mistakenly suggest that none of it would have come about without the rise of Adolf Hitler, thus mistakenly crediting Hitler with the good that followed. An easy example of this would be the ascension of the United States to the throne of superpower status. Pre-war, the United States was practicing large military formations with cavalry. By the end of the war, they were the unrivaled military heroes of the world. The decision to remain relatively sidelined throughout the first half of the war allowed the U.S. economy to reach unprecedented levels, which in turn enabled us to rebuild Europe through Marshall Plan funds and Japan through occupation. The liberal order, which dominated the world for the next 60 years, was birthed from the ashes of Hitler's war. George Friedman, a historian that specializes on geopolitical forecasting, has already attempted to quantify the outcome of World War II on the United States. In an article for Forbes, he admits to the challenge of claiming any positives from such evil events. He states, quote, I had to dismiss from my mind the many acts of gratuitous evil that Hitler committed. It is hard to dismiss those, but in a sense they left little legacy to the world except for the realization that civilization is a thin layer over humanity's beastly savagery. In the analysis that follows, Friedman reminds us that Hitler's legacy includes the decimation of European hegemony and the loss of anything resembling its traditional transcendent ambition. 
when we look at the historical record of British and French imperialism, this is undoubtedly a positive for the world. There was also a massive decline in Christian church attendance throughout Europe, with freedmen crediting Hitler for the coup d'etat to finish off what the Enlightenment had already begun. This secularized Europe turned to an attitude that it was fine to just make a good living, and not dig into grandiose, profound thinking, knowing that those grand thoughts had previously ended in a dark, hopeless tunnel. Rather than spreading Bolshevik ideas around the globe as he feared, Hitler's rise and subsequent defeat unleashed the United States with its unique brand of unfettered capitalism upon the world. Friedman writes, Hitler drew the Americans into the heart of Europe. He destroyed the dams that Europe had built around itself. Likewise, Hitler couldn't have imagined that his Holocaust which resulted in the death of two out of every three European Jew, would contribute to the creation of the Zionist Jewish state of Israel. Cast out of their historical homeland during the diaspora, the decentralized existence of the Jewish people had meant that they were the minority everywhere and the majority nowhere. If Americans are in danger in the world, we would expect the American government to come to their aid. Today, the same can be said of Israel and the Jewish people. Although the Holocaust didn't directly result in the creation of Israel, it clearly influenced Britain's decision to allow one million Jews to emigrate into their territory of Palestine. When the Jewish settlers declared independence, ahead of the date that the Palestinians had been promised, the British either shrugged their shoulders or tore off the Union Jack flag on their uniform to stay and help them achieve their independence. Furthermore, the highly militarized state of Israel, where each citizen is obligated to complete two years of military service, was a direct result of the Jewish people remembering intimately what happened if one did not immediately lash out against threats to their life and liberty. But the rise of America and Israel can't erase the shadow that Hitler still casts over the world. Hitler created a path for right-wing populist extremists to legitimately rise to power. Those neo-Nazi skinheads and the threat that they pose to the world remain to this very day. Historical sites, such as the location where Hitler was born, have had to be torn down to prevent right-wing extremists from turning them into shrines. I was flabbergasted a decade ago to see a court case where a Virginian family had sued their local Walmart for refusing to make a cake for their son's third birthday party. The kid's first name was Adolf, and his middle name was Hitler. Copycats have gone on to use portions of Hitler's playbook for their own gains. Take, for instance, Vladimir Putin's invasion of Crimea, which was done by sending in agitators to cause problems, then claiming that ethnic Russians were being oppressed and that it was his duty as the leader of Russia to go and protect his ethnic relatives. After the invasion, the Russians even copied Hitler's phony placebite method of justifying it after the fact. Just as the world had in the 30s, appeasement was the reactionary order for the day. Martin Lee 
wrote that the United States is vulnerable to the rise of right-wing extremism in his 1997 book, The Beast Reawakens. Lee reminds us of links that have been camouflaged between right-wing extremists and militia members, as well as politicians that demonize foreigners to exploit irrational fears. Although he is clearly not anywhere close to the scale of the evil incarnate that was Hitler, there are now a plethora of books which attempt to connect former U.S. President Donald Trump as one who is at least inspired by what the German fear accomplished. Trump hasn't helped himself by attempting to say good things about Hitler, as he did before a celebration of Armistice Day. Hitler's own term of the big lie is now regularly talked about in America in conjunction with the January 6th Capitol insurrection during his administration. All evidence that history does, in some way, repeat itself. For Germans, the legacy of Hitler is profoundly complicated. The Germans initially suppressed everything about Hitler, but as the Nuremberg trials progressed and the scope and scale of Hitler's actions became clear, it became impossible to ignore their past. West Germany, occupied by the Western powers, became ashamed and rarely would publicly fly their German flags or talk about their country's history, neither recent events nor even long-ago actions. On the other hand, East Germany, controlled by the Soviet Union, leaned hard into nationalism, believing that the socialists, inside and outside of Germany, were the ones that rose up to prevent Hitler from ultimately succeeding in his aims. The Economist tells us that today, things have changed again, as there has been a parallel trend towards what Germans call Hitler porn and Hitler kitsch. The fear became a marketing tool. It started in the 1980s when Stern, a magazine, published what it alleged was Hitler's diary, a sensation that turned out to be a fake. Since the 1990s, the History Channel on German television has aired almost nightly documentaries on Hitler's women, henchmen, last days, ailments, table silver, or German shepherd dog called Blondie. Any footage of the small man with the toothbrush mustache draws an audience. In that way, Hitler has become like sex and violence, bait to sell copies or to grab attention. But this fascination also suggests a new distance. Most of the audience, after all, now have no personal recollection of Hitler. This explains another genre, according to The Economist, satire. During his lifetime, it was Germany's enemies who parodied Hitler as in Charlie Chaplin's film of 1940, The Great Dictator. But in 1998, Walter Moores became the first German satirist to score a hit with a comic strip, Adolf die Nazi Su, Adolf the Nazi Pig. Its producer called the character the greatest pop star we've ever created. The latest bestseller in Germany is Look Who's Back by Timur Wurms. Translated into English, the story imagines Hitler waking up in today's Berlin near his old bunker. Disoriented at first, he so amuses everybody he meets, including his Turkish dry cleaner, that he is launched on in a meteoric career as a comedian. 
This has continued to our current day, with movies such as Jojo Rabbit, where the fear is reimagined as a boy's demented imaginary friend. The British were on the forefront of making fun of the fear, and it started surprisingly early, like before the London Blitz 1940 early. It was illegal to listen to foreign transmissions in Germany, but England sent them over the airways anyways. Der Fear Sprit was the first of many Hitler parodies written specifically for a German audience, and one that was written clearly so that the Germans knew the source of the ridicule was from across the channel. The shows had an effect. After the war, a flood of thank yous had arrived, including one that thanked the BBC and the BBC alone for giving them the moral strength not to become complicit. The creator of the program, Robert Lucas, points out that humor is a weapon that dictators aren't equipped to deal with. Lucas reveals, like any other tyranny, national socialism was completely humorless. Still, there is the danger that laughing at the man makes us forget the lessons that need to be learned from that time period. In 1998, cartoonist Walter Moores published a storyline where Hitler had an affair with Goring, before going on to try and take over the world with Princess Diana. Claus Cesar Zerher, a German satirist and historian, tells The Guardian that, for decades, we learned to see him not as a human being, but as a demon. Now that's changing, and he's tilting over into caricature. He used to be the ultimate villain, now he's the ultimate idiot. This approach is less directed at the fear, but at those who continue to hold him in high regard. As was true in 1940, the satire is an attempt to break through enemy lines and attack an enemy that is completely devoid of humor. It is another attempt to understand what was allowed to transpire. Still, there are those that are frustrated, even hostile, at the idea that we continue to not fully understand the man who set the world on fire and managed to commit a people to the cause of genocide. For many, it is far easier to just lay the consequences of Hitler's actions at his demonic feet, rather than attempting to understand how our human nature allowed regular people to justify their own acts in his service committed by and against our own species. But understanding Hitler can be just as dangerous as turning him into a caricature. Claude Lonsman, one of the foremost experts on the German dictator, tells us that to understand all is to forgive all. Ron Rosenbaum took on this mission, his work explaining Hitler's sole purpose is to help us understand how a young boy in Austria became the master of the German race. Rosenbaum writes in the foreword, To embark upon the attempt to understand Hitler, understand all the processes that transformed this innocent babe into a mass murderer, is to risk making his crimes understandable, and thus, Landsman implies, to acknowledge the forbidden possibility of having to forgive Hitler. Rosenbaum continues, it shouldn't be done, Landsman insists. It can't be done. You can't get from there to here. You can't engender the killing, the mass murders, the destruction of six million people. 
no finite number of explanatory facts, psychological traumas, patterns of bad parenting, political deformations, personal dysfunctions, can add up to the magnitude of the evil that Hitler came to embody and enact. No explanation or concentration of explanations can bridge the gap. Explain the transformation from baby picture to baby killer, to murderer of a million babies. It is not just a gap, Landsman argues. It is an abyss. We'll continue to leave that abyss uncrossed. But we won't deny that what happened happened, nor that it could happen again. Whether history repeats itself or whether it spirals out into worse outcomes, as time progresses, is for future generations to determine. But in the present, we can do what we need to do to make sure that we never become complicit in the rise of another megalomaniac. Learning about the past, and occasionally making a mockery of it, is just one of the steps in humanity's shared journey towards a better world.